Okay, Luke chapter 2. We have made it all the way through Luke chapter 1, and now we're starting Luke chapter 2. We're going to do the first 21 verses today. So we'll start with verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Caesar Augustus was formerly known as Octavian. Caesar Augustus is a title. His name was Octavian, and he was the great nephew of our grandnephew, I would say, of Julius Caesar, who had ruled over the whole empire. Upon Julius Caesar's death, the empire was split up into three parts. Eventually, it was split up into two, and Octavian ruled along with his brother-in-law, Mark Antony. Mark Antony had married Octavian's sister. Now, Mark Antony ended up abandoning his wife and going to, to live and to love Cleopatra, who was the queen of Egypt. Now, obviously, Octavian was upset by this, that his wife had been shamed in disgrace, so he declared war. And in 31 BC, at the naval battle of Actium, he consolidated all power in Rome under himself. And four years later, the Roman Senate gave him the title, not just Caesar, which meant ruler, but Augustus, which meant greatest, like the great supreme one ruler, in recognition of that authority. Caesar Augustus is known as the emperor who brought about what is called the Pax Romana, which is Latin for Roman peace, meaning that the empire had such authority and influence over so much of the world that they were able to keep the world at peace for a very long time. And yet, when we open our Bibles, we are not directed to that story. It doesn't tell us to look at this classical story of power and intrigue and love and betrayal and war and this man who wrought peace by his own hand. Instead, it's going to direct us to an insignificant corner of that empire, to an insignificant city of that corner of that empire. Because what was about to take place in the little town of Bethlehem was going to be far greater and far more significant than any conquest or any empire because a little baby is about to be born. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 prophesied about this and said, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The world is always striving for peace. Not just peace between nations, but peace between people, peace between families, peace with yourself. The, the own anxiety that you're struggling with. And we're always coming at it in, in our own ways, whether it's through the government. If we could just get the right government in there, we'd finally have world peace. Relationships, if I could finally find the right people in my life, then I wouldn't have conflict anymore. Or, or, or status, like if I can finally achieve that thing, then I'll be at peace with myself and I'll feel like I finally arrived and accomplished it. But the thing is, there's only one person who can give us peace on any of those levels. And he's the one, as we're gonna to see today, who is often forgotten and gets crowded out. So we're not talking about Caesar Augustus today. We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. 
So let's pick up at verse two. A decree had been sent out that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So this is the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria that also could possibly translated this census was given before Quirinius was governor of Syria. The word protos in Greek can mean either one. Um, and the reason I bring that up is because there is no external record of this census. Like there's no Roman record that talks about a census that took place at this time. There's also some confusion about when Quirinius was ruling um, over Syria. And people will say, well, the Bible must get it wrong because it's not externally corroborated everywhere. But this is a special pet peeve of mine. They'll say that the Bible is the only source and there's no other primary sources backing it up, forgetting that the Bible itself is a primary source of that time. Like, well, we don't have any record of this census. Yes, you do. It's right here. <laughs> this, was, this was the story that was told. This was, they would remember. It's like, well, we don't have any records. Okay, well you have a record right here. So I'm, I'm not gonna dive too far into this. When did this happen? Well, we know that this happened before Herod died. Herod died in 4 BC. So this had to happen before that. Uh, we're not exactly sure other than that. It seems to be, it would have been reasonably close to that because of the age of Jesus later on. And tradition places the date of Jesus's birth at December 25th. And people love to mock that and bring it up and say that that's been thoroughly debunked. It has not been thoroughly debunked. There is actually very good tradition that goes pretty far back. Uh, notably, there's a guy named Hippolytus. Hippolytus was an associate of Irenaeus, who was a disciple of John. So it's actually pretty close to the, uh, to the source there, to the apostles. Also, John Chrysostom in 386 famously uh, secured the date at December 25th. Um, this has been challenged, but I'll just say, don't let mean people come and ruin your Christmas <laughs> and say, you know, this isn't even the date that Jesus was born, right? And then they want to say that, uh, you know, it was tied to the holiday of, I believe it was Saturnalia. And um, actually, uh, many historians say that it was Marcus Aurelius who moved Saturnalia to coincide with Christmas in order to stamp out Christianity in the Roman Empire. So it, there's a little bit of debate here, but we, we stand on pretty good ground when we say that it was December 25th. And that's really the least of our concerns, obviously, but um, there's always people every Christmas that wanna you know, come out and say, Christians are stupid for worshiping Jesus on, it's, we worship Jesus every day, but it's okay for us to do it on that day. So, so there's, a, there's a census. Why are they being counted? So that they can be taxed, right? It's, it, this is wonderful. There's always, there's a lot of stories about taxes in, in the gospels. It was a big deal because this isn't just taxation, but they're paying tribute to their Roman overlords, right? Now, interesting thing here, it says that everyone went back to his own house. That was not Roman law. Roman law did not dictate that you had to go back to your hometown in order to be taxed. So why is everybody going home? This is interesting because it gives us a little insight in the, uh, the parallels between Jewish culture and Roman culture. What the Roman law did say, and I'm going to quote from this here, it said, whoever has property in a city must deliver his tax declaration in that city, for land taxes must be paid to the community in whose territory the land is situated. So if you owned land here, you had to pay taxes on that land in that city so that the taxes weren't going to some other place. 
Now the Jews did not, even, even the poorest in the land are going home. Why? Because they had the ancestral inheritance that had been established by Moses. If you look in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 13, it talks about this, that in the year of Jubilee, everyone's tribal lands would go back to the original owners every 50 years. So Joseph was a poor man who lived in Nazareth, but because he descended from David, he had an inheritance and a claim to the land in Bethlehem. So when he's got to pay his taxes, all the Jews had to go home because that was the way that they divided property in the land of Israel. So just a little interesting note there. This is why everybody is going back to their house because it's not just what the Romans were doing, but it's in connection with the law of Moses as well. Now he brings Mary with him. She's called his betrothed. Why is it to say that she was betrothed? Because the marriage, of course, she was the virgin, had not been consummated yet. Uh, legally, he had taken her as his wife. We don't get any of Joseph's story in the book of Luke, but we read in Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 1, verse 24 and 25, that an angel visited Joseph in his sleep, and that when he awoke, it says, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. So Joseph brought Mary into his house. There was a wedding ceremony, but there was no consummation of the marriage because she was with child. And it says, until she had given birth. Of course, Mary and Joseph would have other children, but at this point, Mary is pregnant and uh, they're going to wait until after that has happened. So that's why it says she was his betrothed. Even though they were legally married, the marriage had not been consummated. They're traveling from Nazareth, which is up in the north in Galilee down to Bethlehem, this is about a 90-mile journey. This is uh, seven miles south of Jerusalem. Now, tradition always uh, has Mary like alone on a donkey, like always going over like the rocks and the ravines and stuff. There's no reason to assume that they traveled alone. A lot of people would have been traveling at this time. So it's the most likely thing is that they traveled in some kind of caravan, Mary and Joseph. So wouldn't have been as hard on Mary, although it doesn't mean that it would have been a picnic for her either. Um, <laughs> and uh, this would have taken place. So Mary, remember, she was at Elizabeth's house until she had been pregnant for three months. Then she went home. So there's a six month window that we have that this took place. Another thing that is always in the, in the stories is that Mary was like in labor when they got to Bethlehem. There's no reason, reason to assume that either. Uh, she could have been there for a couple months. Who knows how long the census would have taken. It doesn't take away from the story, but it's just good to know what the scripture says and, and what it doesn't. So they go to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is Hebrew for house of bread. Bet is house and lechem means bread. This is where Rachel had been buried. Right? This is where Ruth had met Boaz. If you read the story of Ruth, all that takes place in Bethlehem. And of course, famously, this was David's hometown. So a lot of history here, but the city itself never grew to be much. So it was a little town, which is why we sing, O little town of Bethlehem. But the prophet Micah had prophesied in Micah 5.2 that you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Ephrathah was the region, Bethlehem was the city, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So the town had some good history. There's also some bad history. Judges 17 and 19 tell some rather horrific stories about people from Bethlehem. But it was of no significance in Judea. But we hear the name Bethlehem, and it warms our hearts a little bit. And why is that? Because we see in verse 6, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. 
And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So Mary had her baby, just as the angel had predicted. Remember, we had the angel that came to Zechariah, the angel that came to Mary. Angel also came to Joseph, but that's not in the book of Luke. It's in Matthew. And now the virgin has given birth to a son, just as the prophets predicted. And just like the prophets predicted, he was born in Bethlehem. And she takes the baby and she swaddles him. At this time, I thought this was interesting, just a little note, you know, now uh, we've had a couple babies and you put them in the one blanket and you wanna make sure they're nice and comfortable and they're not compressed. They actually would take the babies and straighten their arms and legs out and wrap several cloths around them, almost mummifying the baby because they thought that it would get them out of the fetal position, it would make their arms and legs stronger. So uh, that's what they did to little baby Jesus. and. All that to say he was probably screaming and crying a little bit because babies don't like that. And uh, there's nothing sinful or blasphemous about saying that baby Jesus would have been crying, right? <laughs> Jesus was a man just like we are and uh, he endured everything that humans endured, including the indignity of birth. <laughs> now it says there was no room for them in the inn. Uh, the word for inn there, don't think of a hotel like we're in right now. Don't think that they had to come and check in and their reservation hadn't been made. Th this word could range from a, a couple different things. Uh, there, there were public way stations where there would be a courtyard basically where uh, everybody would lay down in the courtyard and basically when it filled up, it filled up. Uh, it could have been more of a tavern, which is more similar to this. It could have been a room that they were going to rent from somebody's house. Maybe they had made an arrangement, but by the time they got down there, uh, it was all filled up. Because remember, everybody's coming back for the census, so the city's filling up. Wherever they were trying to go, there was no room for them. And now most of these places would have a building where you would put your animals, and that's where they were putting everybody who was overflowing. <laughs> now there's no room, you can go sleep in the stable, you can sleep in the, in the barn. Uh, it's also possible, tradition actually tells us that there was a cave that they stayed in. So that wherever they were staying, there was a cave nearby, that's where they kept the animals, and they went and stayed in there. And I want you to notice something here. It's not that they were kicked out. It's not that Mary and Joseph showed up and they were like, you know, you can't stay here, get out, nobody wants you. There was just simply no room for them. It was crowded out. You couldn't, what, what are you gonna do? You can't, we wanna blame the innkeeper for like, how dare you? And I mean, in a way, it's like, this is the Messiah, pal, come on. But they had been crowded out. You couldn't fit anything else because of everything else they had going on. And this is gonna be true for Jesus' entire life, by the way. Jesus is gonna be, no one is gonna recognize who Jesus really is, and they're gonna miss what Jesus would call the time of their visitation. And we're gonna see some of these stories where it's like, you missed it, man, that was Jesus, that was your Messiah. John Darby has a quote, he said, he began in a manger, he ended on the cross, and along the way he had nowhere to lay his head. That's the story of Jesus crowded out and forgotten. And this is still something that we have to deal with in our own lives. We don't reject Jesus outright. You know, very rare in our lives are we gonna go, God, I don't have time for you, get out. I don't wanna do this anymore. You know, leave me, Jesus. You know, and you take your Bible and you throw it in the trash can and you take it down to the curb. But no, we don't do that, right? We would never do that. And good, you shouldn't do that. But what happens is Jesus gets crowded out of our lives. There's just too much going on that there's just nowhere else for Jesus to fit. The things that fill, I mean, whether it's work, whether it's family, 
whether it's entertainment, all these things, they, they just box Jesus out. And here's the funny thing. By doing those things, a lot of times we're striving to achieve and get the things that only Jesus can give us. You know, we're trying to provide, right? Well, I've got to provide for my family so I don't have time for God. You're not the provider for your family. God is the provider for your family. And we box Jesus, oh, I, I don't have time. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to get in the word. I don't have time to teach my children. I don't have time for church. I know you guys are here, so I'm sort of preaching to the choir a little bit, but you know, whether it's safety, it's like, oh, I gotta, you know, if I, if I don't take care of this, if I don't do that, then who knows what could happen? Or whether it's love, if people will come to church and they're looking, for, they're looking for someone they can love. And if, you know, looking for a girlfriend, they're looking for a boyfriend. If they can't find it, they'll just move on somewhere else. And it's not really about the Lord, it's about finding somebody that they can be with. Or I'm just trying to find something that will make me happy and all the things that I do, I enjoy them, I like them and you know, you, you've got so much going on in you, your life or your family's life that there's just no time for Jesus. And the problem is well, then we come back and we blame God. We say, Lord, I'm serving you but there's just no peace in my life. There's no joy in my life. God, what's wrong with you? Why can't you? And then the Lord might be saying, well, you've got me sleeping in the stable, man. I, I, try to, I try to come and tell you, hey, why don't, why don't you spend some time reading your Bible today? I don't have time to read my Bible. I got, I got work to do. So then I clear up your schedule for you a little bit and you're like, oh good, I got free time. Now I can do whatever I want. And you go off and you do your, your thing. So then I get you busy, busy again to make you try and focus and you, you, you don't listen. Like these people, we become so focused on temporal, urgent things, right? You know, I don't, you know, no, there's nothing personal, Jesus. Just we got, we got these people here. We got we to gotta get the taxes paid. We got to register. We got to do what we got to do. And, you know, there, if, if I had known, or would, if I had known that you were here, I certainly would have let you in. And then we miss the moment. You know, sometimes when, the, when you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't figure out why, that might be the Lord prompting you and saying, hey, you're busy all day long. How about now? Is now a good time? Can you pray now? Can you read your Bible now? When we, we were so quick to fill up our life, just fill it up and cram it with stuff. Stuff we don't even like sometimes. You ever spend a long time watching something or you're on the internet or you're reading something or you went somewhere and you're like, that was totally useless. <laughs> what did I do that for? You're like, okay, well, and then you don't, we don't change anything and it happens again and it happens again and it happens again and we wonder why there's no peace in our life. And it's foolish. When we say it out like that, it's foolish. And these people were foolish. It's sad that Jesus was, was pushed to the side. And it's not like we can go, well, I understand. In a way I do, but like the Messiah was about to be born. Let's talk a minute about what was really going on here. I mean, we know, yes, Jesus Christ, the Messiah was gonna be born. But let's take a few minutes and, and really dig into what is happening. John chapter one, verse one, and then I'm gonna read verse 14. Said, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God and was God. Shouldn't be a surprise, but we believe in the Trinity. That God is one substance, there's only one God, only one being in the entire universe has the has the quality of godness, right? In three persons. You have one substance and one person. That's who you are. You are a human with one person. God is God with three persons. 
That's what the Trinity is. And the second person of the Godhead is called the Word, the Logos in Greek, the Son of God. And your sin, my sin, caused such a rift between us and God that the only just outcome is to suffer eternally in hell. I'm not going to get too far into this, but we need to make sure that we don't make light of sin. Like, it's not such a big deal. And people, when we say things like, I don't see how God could punish everyone in hell, that, that's not a misunderstanding of God's love. That's a misunderstanding of the wickedness of sin. It's the cancer of the world. It's, it's gone against everything that God has made and every evil, terrible thing that has happened in the world is a result of sin. Every pain, every suffering, every injustice inflicted on somebody else. And the only just thing for God to do is to judge us forever. We were locked into permanent enmity with God. But here's the thing, God is love. God is not just justice, he's love. And in order to provide salvation, in order to heal that wound, in order to make it so that we're not at war with God, but we're at peace with God, God had to become a man. God's like, the only person who could pay for a man's sins is a man, but no man is up to the challenge, so I will become a man. He was incarnated in the person of Jesus. We talk about the incarnation. If you know you speak Spanish, the word carne means like meat or flesh, right? So incarnated, God was put into human flesh. And that was the person of Jesus Christ. As a man, the sacrifice of Jesus could be accepted. And as God, not only was his virtue assured because it could only be a perfect sacrifice, but that sacrifice could apply to all humanity. So consider that. The eternal, omnipotent Son of God has eternally bound himself to humanity for you. You do realize that, that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he did not shed his humanity. That was an eternal incarnation. The Godhead has, <laughs> has brought humanity into the person of the Son for you. That's unthinkable. But that's what the Lord has done. Turn to Philippians chapter 2 for me. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 5 through 11. And it's telling us how we ought to act and how we ought to be humble, but it gives us a great description of, of Jesus' own humility. When it says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, form of God, don't think like he looked like God, he was actually God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, he didn't think I'm never, ever going to, for a moment, humble myself. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God became a man. That is the greatest miracle of all. If you believe that God became a man, no other miracle should be a stumbling block for you. God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. This, according to 1 Peter 1.20, was the eternal plan of the Trinity. Before creation, God knew, if I create these people, they're going to rebel against me. And if that happens, the only way that we'll be able to save them is if God becomes a man. That was God's solution 
to the hatred and the war between man and God was self-sacrificing love. Listen, if you could keep that in the forefront of your mind at all times, there would be no danger of distraction or apathy in your life. When you realize that God has given himself up and humbled himself for you, then, then what else is there? <laughs> what else is left at that point? What's more important than that? How, how do you get over that? We shouldn't. But these people didn't understand what was about to happen. They didn't get it. And Luke's story so far has been actually, you know, it's sort of sweet. It's understated, right? Mary had a baby. She wrapped him up in the cloth. She laid him in the manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I wonder if they had to clear out the hay first, you know, and they put the baby down. But he's about to let us know, and God is about to let us know that this was a big deal. This was the biggest of deals. <laughs> this is the most important thing that had ever happened. So let's read verse eight. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So we cut from the, from the stable to an open field. Shepherds are guarding their sheep. I wonder, by the way, if these were the same hills where David had guarded his father's sheep back in the book of 1 Samuel. Little thing here. If it's true that this was wintertime and these were guarding their sheep close to the town as it seems, then this is most likely these were sheep that were being prepared for sacrifice in the temple. There's not, that's not 100% certain, but if that is true, that's a pretty cool thing that the Lord did there. These are the sheep being prepared to be the sacrifices in the temple. And meanwhile, the Lamb of God has just been born. Well, this has kind of become a familiar sequence for us in this story. Something normal is going on. An angel appears. The people are afraid. The angel says, fear not. And he gives an announcement about Jesus. The shepherd says they were filled with great fear. In the language there, it's they feared a great fear. That's what's called, a, it's his, the name's not important. It's called a cognate accusative. This is a Hebrew uh, turn of phrase. It's a rhetorical device in Hebrew that, you know, they feared a great fear. You know, there's a part, places in the Bible that says where I will kill you with killing, right? You know, or I will, I have loved you with love, right? And uh, it actually, in, back in verse eight, when it says keeping watch over their flocks, it says that they were watching with a watch. This, and why is that important? Because remember, Luke is taking sources that have been compiled, which means this Greek was probably translated from a Hebrew source at some point, which is just pretty cool for us to remember that Luke is putting, bringing all of these stories together. So very, very cool. But he tells them to fear not because he's got good news of great joy. He actually, that word there, when he says, I bring you good news of great joy, he says, I evangelize to you great joy. It's the Greek word euangelizomai, where we get our word evangelize. This is the first time in the book of Luke and Acts that we see the word evangelize. And it is by far not the last. We're going to see that word a lot. So cool. He's like, 
This, this angel is the first one evangelizing and bringing the good news, the story of Jesus. And he announces the Savior, the Son of David, Christ the Lord. Now for us, we think, oh yeah, these are titles for Jesus. Remember, Jesus hadn't been born yet, but these guys would have known what that meant. It would have meant that Messiah is coming, the promised one, the descendant of David has finally been born. And he tells them where they can find Jesus. And these shepherds get, are, have the, the greatest privilege, man, to hear this from the angels. And at that moment, a multitude of the heavenly host. What is a host? It's an army. A multitude of heavenly armies. So think like these are angelic soldiers, man. Don't think like the, you know, the little winged babies with diapers, you know, that like are, are painted on the walls. And there's a bunch of, you know, little cherubs, you know, bouncing around and singing with the soprano ensemble. These are soldiers, a heavenly host. They all stand up and it doesn't say that they sing. It says that they said. So think of like, you know, we, you know the Marines and the, and the soldiers. Hoorah! Right? That real tough, loud voice together. There's glory to God in the highest, right? Oh, soldiers with their weapons. I don't know what weapons angels use. Who knows, right? But they're, they're shouting. This is a mighty angelic army declaring peace. Do you see that? The army of God saying, and on earth, peace. Glory to God in the highest. Jesus would say later on, I could summon legions of angels if I wanted to. These angels were ever at Christ's disposal, but Jesus did not come to bring war to the world. He came to bring peace. Later on, he will come, and when the heavenly host appears with Jesus, it is going to be war. But for now, the Lord is like, we're gonna bring salvation first. You know, Caesar had brought peace to the world, but it was through intrigue and murder and war and force, Jesus would bring a greater peace. A greater peace. When I was in fifth grade, I was in the play A Charlie Brown Christmas. <laughs> and I played Linus. So my job was to memorize this passage. Uh, you might remember the scene where Linus, right? He's like, I'll tell you what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown, right? I don't know if they picked me because they knew I was the pastor's kid and maybe I knew the Bible verses already. But um, I memorized this, of course, in the classic traditional King James, right? And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in their field, right? So when you get to verse 14, I saw some of you guys kind of, your brows furrow a little bit. This is not how Charlie Brown said it. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. We, we usually wait for goodwill towards men, right? I'm reading from the ESV. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I'm very sad to say that the old King James versions, those were translated very poorly. Uh, verse 14. Um, it's in Greek, what you literally have here is in men of favor, and anthropos eudokias. So, and on earth, peace in men of favor. So, I don't know why, I really don't know why it was translated that way, but this is peace among men of eudokia. That word means favor or blessing or grace. What's the point here? Peace is coming for those who receive the grace of God, for those who are favored of the Lord, which is exactly what we know the gospel was, right? That the peace of God was coming to those who would receive the grace of the Lord, those with whom he is pleased, those whom the Lord has chosen. So 
we need to be willing, this is just a little, little quick lesson here, we need to be willing to let the text say what it actually means rather than hold on to some of our favorite Bible verses. Uh, and I know that's, that's rough, but the Bible was not written in English, it was written in Greek, and so we, and, or Hebrew, if it's the Old Testament. Um, so, but it, it is kind of interesting. It, it draws your attention to it. You, just, you don't just kind of absorb, yeah, okay, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. This was never about bringing world peace. You know, the Lord is in favor of world peace, and it's not the point, right? The point is, the gospel is what he's talking about here, is that the Son of God has come to bring peace to the chosen of God, to those who will put their faith in him and receive the favor and the grace of God. So, little note there, because I, I know that that's a little jarring when you read it and you're used to the old version, um, but that's okay. Angels, we don't know too much about angels. But you know what's cool about this here? Angels are not recipients of salvation, right? Jesus did not become an angel and die on the cross for angels. He died on the cross for us. There's a verse in 1 Peter, verse one, chapter one, verse 12, and it says, it was revealed to the prophets that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Peter is saying the prophets, when they prophesied the gospel, they didn't really understand everything that it implied, but you do because you've seen the fulfillment of these things. You understand the gospel. Even angels wish they could get this like you get this. That's, a, that's an amazing privilege that we have, that we have understanding that even the angels in heaven do not have because Jesus died for us. All of heaven is rejoicing here because they know, they're not exactly sure what's going on here, they're not exactly sure how this works, but they know that the Lord has begun to redeem the world. Even these angels, they know that this is the greatest thing that ever happened to them. What do you think the incarnation means to angels when they think about that? Angels are spirits, they're not, they're not humans, right? You don't become an angel when you die. These are, these are spiritual beings that God created. And then they see God created men, people. We're frail, we're physical, we don't live just in the spiritual world. And then they see that we rebelled against God. And we know how God handled the angelic rebellion, right? It's like, that's it, fellas, you're out of here. Everlasting torment. But when we rebel, the Lord says, I love them too much. I'm gonna reach out and save them. And for thousands of years, they're watching humanity's failure. I'm like, Lord, what? is going on? Why do you care for these people so much? You know, David writes in his psalm, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the angel's like, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> what is it about them, right? And, but then now they see that the Son of God, the Word of God, the Logos, Jesus Christ has become a man. And they're like, the Lord must have something incredible up his sleeve. Glory to God! And the Lord tells them to celebrate and they rejoice at this. This is what we're gonna see all through Luke. We've already seen it, that when God does something, praise erupts from the heavens to the earth. And listen, you should rejoice too because not only because God has descended from his glory and come down, but because the Lord descended to somebody like you, to shepherds, to nobodies, to people who couldn't even afford to stay in the, in the, in the inn. They had to go and sleep with the, with the sheep and the cows and the camels and everything else. Those are the people that the Lord came from. And all of a sudden it becomes that much more grievous when we realize how Jesus had been crowded out 
and didn't get the reception that he deserved. But God is going to make sure that his death does not go unheralded. We read verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, well, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Well, the shepherds go to Bethlehem and they found the baby. I love verse 17 because it says, and when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told concerning this child. So, I mean, you just had a baby and now all of a sudden a bunch of shep shepherds show up at the door of the stable and were asking to see the baby that you've never met before. And then they're rejoicing and, and hugging each other and, you know, saying, praise the Lord. And they're like, what is going on? And they had to explain this. They explained, it says, to all. They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And then it says, verse 18, all who heard it. So here's another thing that we can kind of miss. Mary and Joseph were not the only ones staying in this stable. So forget not only did Mary have to deliver her baby in the presence of a bunch of animals, but there's other people crowded into this stable too. And so now not only is it strange that the shepherds are showing up, but you've got you know, these people over here saying, could you keep it down? What's going on? Like, this is the baby, this is the son of David, the Messiah. And no one is really sure what's going on. What is going on here? Everybody wonders, like, what is happening here? This is the strangest night in a stable I've ever stayed before, you know? And the shepherds go home and they're rejoicing. And, but here's, look at what Mary does. It says, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. You know, we see as we go through the gospel, Mary knew more than most what was going on with Jesus. But she didn't fully understand what was going on. You can see like at, at, at the, the wedding in Cana, this is in the book of John, where Jesus is there and she's sort of like nudging him like, hey, this would be a great time for you to, you know, do a miracle here, Jesus, and show everybody who you are. And he's like, woman, my time has not yet come. Don't call your mother woman. That's not, that doesn't translate in this culture, <laughs> by the way, uh, just so you know. But she didn't fully understand it either. You know, she, she was there and, and knew that the Lord had given her something and she knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but she's pondering them in her heart. She's like, what is, what is happening to me? What is happening in my life and in my family? That is the correct response. The shepherds had an emotional response, had a great response. These people had a, were part of the moment wondering what's going on. But listen, it is not what happens in the moment that counts. It's the faithfulness afterwards that, that matters. We have moments with God all the time. Those are great. It's good to have moments with God. You should, you know? And we, we, sometimes we can be a little too down on that where it's like, you know, we don't live on our emotions and we don't have to. Okay, yes, of course not. But it's good every now and then to have a, a serious, intense, elevated moment with God, right? This is why the Lord had the people come back for the feast several times a year to celebrate and rejoice and have a, a party with each other to remember what God had done. Those are good, but what is most important is the faithfulness afterwards. The people wondered, the shepherds rejoiced, and I'm not even knocking the shepherds here, but I'm trying to point out Mary continually came back to these things treasured him up in her heart, pondered these things. I wonder what Luke is thinking as he's maybe hearing Mary tell the story to him and she's like, you know, I, I, I didn't know what to think at that time. I, I didn't know and I just, I've thought about this for years, Luke. And he's like, 
Mary got it. She knew she didn't get it enough, so she was always thinking about it. Because moments are great, but can you make a change off of that moment? Alexander McLaren said this, the truth will never disclose its inmost sweetness to us, nor take so sovereign a grip of our very selves as to mold our lives unless we too treasure it in our hearts and by patient brooding on it, understand its hidden harmonies and spread our souls out to receive its transforming power. A non-meditative religion is a shallow religion. But if we hide his word in our hearts and often in secret draw out our treasure to count and weigh it, we shall be able to speak out of a full heart and like these shepherds to rejoice that we have seen even as it was spoken unto us. Like that, a non-meditative religion is a shallow religion. And he talks about like taking your treasure out and counting it and weighing it and thinking on the things that the Lord has done for you and allowing what was a great moment to become a pattern in your life. Like today, you've been reminded of the incarnation, that God sent his only son, not just to live, but to die for you, to save you from death and hell, from eternal torment. Consider that word for five seconds, eternal torment. Jesus came to deliver you from that. Hopefully, you're stirred in your heart a little bit. Hopefully, you hear that and you're like, yes, thank you, Lord. That's good. But don't let that be the end of it. You know, we, we have church once a week, sometimes two or three times a week, depending on how things go. And we, we hear the word and we sing and we pray and we fellowship and it can get us pumped up, which is good. We need that. But it's dangerous to then immediately go home and let all of that get sucked out of you. All of the love, all of the joy, all of the, the resolution in your heart to let the birds of the air come and pluck that away from you. You know, whether it's you go home and, you know, I don't have cable these days, but back in the day, you know, I'd go home from church and I'd watch like three or four football games, right? That's, is, are those, is that wrong to do that? No, but it was wrong when I allowed it to remove the lesson that God had been teaching me that morning. So by the time the afternoon and evening was over, it was as if I, I might as well have not gone to church at all because I'm no different. I'm exactly the same. Or even just the conversations, the routine. Man, routine, if you're not careful, will kill your spiritual life. It also can save your spiritual life if you get your, your, make sure that that's part of it. But when you just get back to regular life and showing up to church is part of regular life, you've got to make sure that you are constantly meditating on the things of God. You know, Psalm chapter 1 said that the man who meditates day and night on the law of the Lord is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields fruit in its season. The leaf doesn't wither, and in all that he does, he prospers. How do we make sure we're not crowding Jesus out? We're letting the things of God sink into our heart. Does this mean you need to spend 24 hours a day you know, in prayer and only, you, know, you only ever read your Bible and you only ever watch the old time gospel hour and that's, you know, that's all? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying you need to make sure that when God is speaking to you, you take the time to let him finish. You take the time to absorb the lesson and go back to it. And that you are making sure that you're in the word and you are making sure that you're in prayer and that you're fasting now and then to make sure just to kind of center everything right back to where it needs to be. And when we hear that word meditation, by the way, we, we've allowed the Eastern mystic people to hijack the word meditate. That's our word. 
It's kind of like you can't have love, you can't have peace, that's our thing. You can't have justice, that's our thing. You can't have meditation, that's our thing. But there is a major difference between Eastern and Christian meditation. Eastern meditation is all about just empty your mind. You should always be suspicious about anybody who tells you to empty your mind, right? <laughs> just, don't, just don't think. It's like, don't tell me not to think, all right? What, but Christian meditation is the exact opposite. It's about filling your mind with the things of God, allowing the Lord to fill your mind with the truth, to sit and think about it, to think deeply. Oh, I already understand that. Do you, though? You might get it, you might know it, but let it sink into your heart and change your life. And like, if this is true, then what? And just to be quiet and still, and this, I mean, you know, you don't need to do something weird, like cross your legs all funny and like, you know, close your eyes and try and get into the mood of, just, just think about it. You think about things all the time. You come out of a weird movie and you're like, oh, that didn't make any sense. And you spend 10 days thinking about it, right? Think about the word of God, do the same thing. You know, when you're, if you're gonna spend your mor in your mornings, if you read your Bible and you pray, great things to do in the mornings or evenings or anytime, Read the word before you jump right into prayer. Just take 10 minutes and just think about it. Just think about that and say, Lord, what, what, what is this? What do you have to say to me? And then come to the Lord in prayer. It's just slowing down a little bit and letting the things of God fill your mind. The Holy Spirit will meet you there. That will happen. If you call upon the Lord, God, will you please speak to me? What's God gonna say? No, right? Sometimes it might not be a, something you want to hear. Like, you know, you've got to get this together. You've got to stop doing that. You need to stop talking to them. You know that that was wrong and you've got to go make it right. But it's still going to be the voice of God. Verse 21, at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Everything the angel had said at the beginning of this book has come true. Child is born and his name is is Jesus. Hebrew, this would have been Yehoshua, which is where we get named Joshua, right? Uh, it's very likely that Jesus spoke Aramaic. The Aramaic version of that word would have been Yeshua. Um, some people wanna make a really big deal about we have to call God the right name. Um, that's, that's really not, <laughs> that's not that important, all right? It's, you don't wanna call him by a false name, but Jesus, and all of those names mean what? Yahweh, God is salvation. Is that, a, is that the best name for Jesus or what? The Lord has come to bring salvation. We've said it already, but I wanna bring it back to this. Caesar Augustus brought peace. War, intrigue, murder. But the Prince of Peace brought peace to all people through his own death, his own suffering, his own humility. He didn't win peace after he had secured his own throne and power and said, now that I've taken care of me, I'm gonna take care of everybody else. He says, no, I am going to sacrifice myself that everybody else can have peace. You know, that's, that's what Jesus did. It's not just peace on earth. Will there be peace on earth? Yes, the Lord is gonna rule for a thousand years in a righteous reign on the earth. There will be peace, but peace between families or members of a single family. Peace in the midst of trials, peace in your innermost soul. If you've ever struggled with depression or anxiety, that's a rough, rough thing to deal with. 
And you're like, all I want is, I just want it to be quiet. I want my mind and my heart to be still and to have rest. And that's what Jesus brings. This is why I'm telling you to, I'm urging you to meditate on what it means for Christ to be the Prince of Peace. What did it take for Jesus to win that title? When you think of how undeserving we are, the realization of his love. When you recognize how undeserving you are, you know, there's two approaches here and one of them is biblical and one of them is not. One approach is like, Jesus loves you. Doesn't that make you so great? You must be pretty special for Jesus to love you. That, that's really cute <laughs> and it sounds nice and it might help build somebody's self-esteem, whatever that is. But how about this? You have no value. You have no worth. You have nothing to commend you to God and yet God loves you anyway. Isn't that better? Isn't that better? Like, it's not that you're so great and that's why God loves you. You're a diamond in the rough and Jesus is gonna polish you up. No, you are all rough. And, <laughs> and God loves you like you're a diamond. That's the gospel. When you let that overwhelm your heart, that's where joy and peace come from. Because it's no longer about your, your, your achievement and your status and the things that you do and earning God's love. You can't earn God's love. You couldn't earn God's love before, and it's not like God says, I loved you when you were a sinner, but now that you're saved, you better shape up if you wanna keep that love. That doesn't work, what kind of marriage would that be, right? Well, I loved you, you know, unconditionally when we got married, but now that we're married, I mean, you gotta really get it together if, you wanna, if this is gonna work. No. Stop crowding out the one who can give you peace. Look at your life, go home and look at your life. Is there room for Jesus? Not, do you know that there should be room for Jesus? Is there room for Jesus in your life? It's really easy to be like, well, I mean, this, this is a crazy time, and once this time is over, then, you know, we'll have time for this. You can do that your whole life. You know, I, I used to say this to the high schoolers, but it applies here, even though we're at a different stage of it. Like, you say, well, when I, I would say, well, when I, when I, graduate high school and I grow up, then I'll really take Jesus seriously. Well, once I get through college and all this is done, then I'll take it seriously. Well, once I, once I get married, then it's, well, once we have kids, oh, once the kids grow up, oh, once the kids move out, oh, now, once I retire, oh, now that I'm retired, I've just gotta take time for me. And like you spent, you spent your whole life saying someday I'll take this seriously. And then the enemy will just let you keep playing that game. Make time, make room for Jesus because that's where joy and peace come from. Lord, why, do I, why am I so desperate in my life all the time? Well, maybe you need to make room. Make room for Jesus. Because Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Does that sound like you? Do you just labor and you're heavy laden in your life? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your soul. Just hear that phrase, rest for your soul. Man, there are people that would give anything to have rest for their soul. And Jesus offers it freely because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is only the beginning of the greatest story, the birth of Jesus, Christmas in September. <laughs> so what, what do we do with this now? Hide this in your heart. Like Mary pondered these things in your heart. Don't just, don't just go out and get back to life and say, okay, good, we did church, check, now let's move on to the next thing. 
like Alexander McLaren said, take out your treasure every once in a while and think about it, weigh it, count it, and ponder on what the Lord has done for you. Because when you do that and you begin to hear and feel the realness of what Jesus has done, that's when joy and peace begin to come. You can't work out peace for yourself. Because if you make it, then you've got to maintain it. And then that's not really peace, is it? Trust the Lord to do this for you. Because it only comes through the name of Jesus.